0: place like home. It is good to be home. Well, well done, Teresa. You made it through. That was uh, memorable. <laughs> I'm just hoping it's not contagious up here. We'll see what we get through. So uh, Mary and I and uh, Rachel, we were just in India last week. And wow. so, um, yeah, yes, yes, it's good to be home. <laughs> uh, a lot of fun. There was uh, one of our stu- graduates from the Columbus School of Supernatural Ministry, he's been a missionary for 30 years over in India, and he went and started a school of supernatural ministry in India. And so, then that just sounded like a good idea? And so it was at a YWAM base, which is Youth with a Mission, started by Lauren Cunningham. Uh, I made a, a major um, faux pas over there. I, I somehow, I don't know what I was saying. I was, I was naming some great saints who had passed away. And I said, you know, and, and Lauren Cunningham, who of course has passed away, which is the founder of YWAM, who has not passed away. And they're like, what? He was alive yesterday, and I'm like, oh, oh, you know, he's so old. Who knew? You know, and so, uh, major faux pas. That's like going to Bethel and saying, well, of course, Bill Johnson passed away. And they're like, what? So, yeah, that was a bad one. And so, um, I think that was my worst. But yeah, we uh, Sean went there last month to India and taught. So lots of fun. Just super hungry students. And so it was just really. You know, there is just some, some really, they came from some really broken churches with some really abusive leaders, some of them, just really bad. The prophets over there, this is kind of like the, the standard MO for a prophet, is they would come into town and tell people who God was going to kill. That was like, if you marry this person, you're going to die. And they would marry that person, and then they would die. It was just like, that's their view of prophecy. The prophets would uh, take fingernail clippers and clip the ends of their fingers off to uh, make them bleed, to help with the deliverance, like just crazy, crazy things. And so when, uh, you know, when the Zion team came over there between Sean and us and uh, giving them good news, they were thrilled <laughs> to hear good news that God was not going to kill them for marrying people and, you know, just all sorts of wacky stuff. And so, but it was just a real privilege. They are really hungry. Um, you know, it was, uh, my heart really, I've been really just uh, struck. We went to some slums and whatever you think of slums, uh, like, you know, there's nothing in America that can come close to, you know, a third world slum. There's, I mean, there's no inner city poverty that compares to it. So a picture about 100 houses in about the size of this sanctuary. And so, obviously, they're very small. They're made out of mud. And, um, you know, the, it's just amazing. Kids everywhere, they just have that joy, even though they've got nothing. But just, uh, just extreme poverty, and they've been so beaten down, they're just numb emotionally. Yeah, we prayed for a lady who was blind in one eye. She gets her sight completely back and just no emotion. She just walked away as if you just handed her like a coupon or something. And so they're just, just that level of, uh, of just struggle. And so to see God's goodness come in, the slum that we went in, the way that the gospel got into the slum, was there was a, a young man there, him and his wife began prayer walking the area. So just kind of walking around, praying, getting to know people. And um, somebody, they came, came across somebody's cow who had just died. So the cow's laying there dead. And over there, cows are like pets. They're like part of the family. And uh, he prayed and raised the cow from the dead. And so uh, that, that gave them an inroad for the gospel. And so they got like a, a children's uh, program going there and everything. And so... Just cool stuff. It was just really wonderful. Dozens of healings, uh, deliverances. Um, One that really sticks out, though, this was really fun. So we did a leg growing activation. So, you know, uh, people, a lot of times if they've got uh, pains from, like, the lower back on down, sometimes it's from a leg being longer than the other so we did an activation, and I uh, had this student uh, hold someone else's legs, and the class gathered around, and the leg grew out. So you know that's like a creative miracle, bone tissue, muscle ligament being added. So they're screaming. They've never seen like a visible miracle like this. So I'm like, well, hey, how about we just partner up in groups of two, sit in chairs opposite each other, and see if you guys have short legs. Well, I'm sorry. It's just so weird being able to talk at normal speed, because over in India, yeah, I had to keep slowing down. They had to keep giving me this signal. I'm not, I don't know what this means, but it meant you're talking too fast. So... It's so good to be able to talk at a normal pace again. I'm so excited. Anyway, so we had them pair up, and there's this one gentleman. He was just really shut down the whole time. He was uh, just very quiet, and uh, he kept getting prayer for his knee, and it kept getting better and better. And uh, so he partnered up with this guy, and the guy not only had a leg about an inch and a half shorter, but his foot was deformed and pronated and kind of turned in. And so he prayed, and as the uh, shorter leg came out, it also reformed. The deformity left, and it twisted out. And he is freaking out. He's yelling, I never knew God could use me for miracles. Who knew? Now I'm a miracle worker. And he's going around. And the rest of the time, he would not stop laughing and talking and smiling. And it was just like God's goodness going through him. So it was just super precious. So, But uh, I am thankful for America. Yes. Uh, and uh, I, I don't like Indian food. And they had a lot of Indian food in India. And so... Uh, it was challenging. <laughs> I did a lot of like fake bites, like, mm, mm, yeah, yeah, wonderful. Okay, so good to be back. Thanks for letting us go there. And uh, if you'll turn with me in your iPhones to Hebrews chapter two. <laughs> We're going to talk about Jesus, which this is really cool. When we went over there, they're saying, Man, when Sean came here, he just made everything about Jesus and when you guys came here, you just made everything about Jesus and I'm thinking like what are other people talking about? Like like he's kind of the whole thing. He's like yeah, and so I don't know. It's uh, I don't know. I, I guess it's a nice compliment, but it's just one of those that you should never get, you know? It's like I wish everyone talked about Jesus like this, but it was fun. Uh, Rachel did a bunch of activations with them and teaching. Mary got to lead worship and, um, and uh, talk to the worship leaders and the school worship leaders. And so, super fun. All right, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to be reading from the Passion Translation. I believe it's coming up there. And so, uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus, our high priest, which may not sound exciting, but by the end, you'll have your shouting shoes on. You guys ready? Yeah. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 Since all his children, speaking of Jesus' children, have flesh and blood, so Jesus became human to fully identify with us. He did this so that he could experience death and annihilate the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds against us the power of death. By embracing death, Jesus sets free those who live their entire lives in bondage to the tormenting dread of death. For it is clear that he didn't do this for angels, but for all the sons and daughters of Abraham. This is why he had to be a man and take hold of our humanity in every way. He made us his brothers and sisters and became our merciful and faithful king priest before God as the one who removed our sins to make us one with him. He suffered and endured every test and temptation so that he can help us every time we pass through the ordeals of life. I love how He's calling this translation calls him the king priest because he's a priest of the royal order of Melchizedek. So here's what you need to know about uh, um, Old Testament priests. They represented man to God and they represented God to man. So humanity would have issues, struggles, sins, and they would come and they would carry away those sins through sacrifices to God. But then they would come and they would mediate God's solutions to man. And we're going to see that Jesus perfectly did this. He, 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 he carried our problems so that we don't have to carry them anymore. Carried them away to God, but he didn't just take us away and leave us in neutral. He came and he brought back God's uh, power and solutions, whatever situation we uh, ever go through, back to us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 Jesus understands humanity, for as a man, our magnificent king-priest was tempted in every way, just as we are, and conquered sin. So now we come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned, to receive mercy's kiss, and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. So our salvation, our Christianity, everything hinges upon Jesus. And here's the neat thing about him. He was, he was a human being, but he was also God. He wasn't just a human being pretending to be human. He was actually human. And the reason the Bible says is he became a human to save humans. And so um, the plan of God is that he was going to deal with every human being in one person. So you need to understand this. You are either in Adam, which means you have a sinful nature and you have all the consequences that go with that. Or you are in Christ, which means you are now righteous. And you're not now God delights to treat you as if you were Jesus himself. So he has decided to deal with the whole human race if you are either one or of two uh, men. But here's the concept in the Old Testament that we learn. One person can stand for the whole. Okay, so the best illustration I know of this is uh, the story of David and Goliath. There was uh, an ancient Middle Eastern warfare principle. And uh, if you remember this, Goliath is uh, he's coming down, he's taunting them. We see this in uh, 1 Samuel 17, 8 through 10. And he said this, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So here's the principle: Is hey, why have all this widespread massacre and loss of life? Why don't you just choose a man who will represent all of Israel? And Goliath was going to represent Philistia. And whoever won, if Israel won, Philistia would become slaves. If uh, Philistia won, then all of Israel would become slaves. So you can understand, uh, you know, you can see the situation going on here. So every morning, Goliath would come at sunrise and sunset. He was a Philistine. So they had this highly polished brass armor, and and he had these large headdresses on, and he was nine feet tall, had weapons in proportion to his size. And you can imagine, sunrise and sunset, it would be just as the sun was just beaming off this armor. He just looked larger than life, and he's coming down, and he's challenging them. So, David was too young for the draft, and so his father, Jesse, sends him to, uh, to go check on his brothers who were drafted for the war, takes him some cheese sandwiches, and he gets there just in time to hear the giant uh, calling out this challenge. And you can imagine David's like, hey, why isn't anyone going to fight this guy? David didn't know this challenge had been going on for six weeks. Why isn't anyone going to fight this guy? And so um, Saul had tried to, king, the king of Israel, Saul, had tried to sweeten the pot. So he said this. He says, um, anyone who defeats the giant doesn't ever have to pay taxes again. And they're like, yeah, dead men don't pay taxes. That's not that great of an offer. So then he makes his offer. Anyone who beats the giant uh, gets to marry my daughter. And everyone's thinking, she's not that good looking. No, you know, we're going to. So David comes along, and David, uh, you know, takes up the, uh, he takes up the challenge. You have to understand, when David takes up the challenge and he walks out to the battlefield, he is no longer just representing David. He is is representing all of Israel. All of Israel is in David, even though they're not lifting a finger for the battle. He is their covenant representative, their high priest, if you will. He's their covenant representative. So as he walks off, they uh, they can feel the soil underneath the sandals as David walks out there. They can feel the weight of the five smooth stones. And as David walks out there towards Goliath, he runs at him and he says this. He's actually uh, dancing around and mocking Goliath like a little mosquito, just, just like a, bothering him. He says this, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I like this guy. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. I mean, I think we need to stand up and just read this verse over some I don't know what we'd be reading it over, but it just feels absolutely amazing. So Goliath he's got on this armor, he's trying to like, you know, swat away this mosquito. And so the armor only had one weakness. It was right where the visor came down. There was a small weakness in the forehead. It's like that small weakness in the Death Star where Luke Skywalker had to fire his laser cannon into that two-meter thermal exhaust port. I remember it led directly to the uh, reactor system. Of course, Luke had been training. uh, He used to bullseye womp ramps on his uh, home planet of Tatooine in his T-16. So he was prepared for this. So it's a small weakness exactly like that. For those of you who don't understand Star Wars... That was just an amazing reference. Just appreciate it privately. Thank you. Thank you. More to come. Okay. And so as David, uh, as he's dancing around, all of Israel can feel David dancing. Because David was not just doing this for them. He was doing it as them. He was their covenant representative. As he grabs a slingshot and he begins to swirl it around, they can hear the swish of the stone next to their ears. As he lets that stone go, hits him in that one weakness, knocks out the giant, takes takes the giant's sword, hacks off the giant's head, and he holds it up and all of Israel yells, we won, even though they didn't lift a finger. Guys, this is the perfect picture of our story. Our covenant representative, our high priest, went and conquered the enemy. And we sat back there and said, we won, even though we did nothing to lift a finger. But in God's eyes, this is how it works. One man can stand for all. You were in David. David's uh, uh, future generations, his children, his children's children, all of Israel, they had victory over the Philistines because of David's victory, even though they weren't born yet. You and I have victory over the enemy, even though we weren't born yet, because we were in Christ. He is our high priest. But here's what I want you to get. The Bible says, he was tempted in all points like we are, yet was without sin. He was tempted in his life before he died. I want you to see, Jesus didn't just die for us, he lived for us. He, he was tempted, he, he endured all the sufferings in his life so that he could represent those to God, but he can also come back and the same victory that he received in his life. He it wasn't just some pincushion, just, just suffering and having all these troubles. He actually had victory over every situation. And we're going to see here in a minute, he, he experienced anything that you and I could ever experience. And had victory in it. So now we can boldly come to him and he will give us grace. He will give us the victory, the same victory that he had, he will give it to us. Here's what I want to do. Um, it says he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. This means you don't just know it by facts, you know it by experience. You know, um, I, could, I could say, you know what, I know what it's like to have a baby. <clears throat> I was there for the birth of my children. I was pre-med. I understand these things from a medical viewpoint. So if someone says, Jim, do you understand what it's like to have a baby? I could say, of course I did. I've read science books on it. I've observed it from the, you know. But if you would ask my wife, she would say, no, no, you you don't know anything about having a baby. (laughs) She knows what it's like to have a baby by experience, right? Wow. When when Jesus says he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, he doesn't just because he read about it in the All-Knowing Universe book. He doesn't just know it by observation. He knows it because he's experienced it himself. Listen, you don't have a God who's just up there like really smart, just observing things. There's a human being who's running the universe right now. When Jesus ascended into the invisible part of the universe, he didn't leave his humanity behind. There's a human being running the universe who's experienced everything you could experience, and he's able to impart that grace to you in your time of need. So I want to show you here how Jesus experienced everything. Because I know some of you are thinking, ah, he didn't experience what I've experienced. Well, we're going to look at this here. So um, let's break this down to where we live. Break it down. Here we go. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus was born. I tell you, Indian changed you. India changed you. I tell you what. Someone told me I look tanner. I'm like, I don't know how that's possible. And I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. I don't want to ruin my ministry to the Goths. Here we go. Jesus was born in a third-world country in a stable. Now, I don't know what you understand by that. I think if you look at some Christmas cards, you would actually think it would be a good thing to be born in a stable, right? Um, here's what a stable was. And so the camels, camels are the most honorary animals on the planet. They are nasty, stinky, disgusting animals. The camel drivers, they would pull up their... Basically, it's the truck stop parking lot is where Jesus was born. The camel drivers would bring, then they would have the, uh, you know... So here's what a hotel was back then. So there were these man-made holes. So picture in the back of the room, they had these man-made holes that were just a covering. You would go in there and you would have shelter for the night. But in the the stable would be the the parking lot area where they would have the straw and the hay. So with all the fluids and the mess and the excretions that go with all that, Jesus was born into that environment. He's basically born in the parking lot of a truck stop. When God became flesh, he grew up under the stigma of being born out of wedlock. In the first century, that was really a big deal to have that that follow you around. When he was two years old, Jesus was ripped out of his crib, and they fled from a madman named Herod who was hunting him down trying to kill him. We hear these stories of Nazi Germany and the oppressive regimes of Somalia and other war-torn countries, villages being wiped out. Jesus was the survivor of one of the most oppressive regimes ever to scourge this earth. Jesus says, "Listen, you fled from Hitler. I know what it's like. I fled from Herod. I know what it's like to flee for your life and to have that kind of trauma. Jesus was raised in Nazareth, and I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but here's the attitude of Nazareth. What a dump. It was the slums. It was the Hicksville of the day. When Nathaniel uh, said this statement, he was echoing all of the, uh, of the New Testament people's attitude. He said this, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" There was a Roman garrison at Nazareth, and so there was uh, Roman legions there. But why? Because the place was filled with terrorists. The the Jews, they just, they could not crush their spirit. And so if you were to be assigned to Nazareth was the worst assignment a Roman soldier could get because they just wouldn't listen. And so if you were bad somewhere else, then you got assigned to be a Roman soldier there. And so um, Jesus grew up looking around the hills of Nazareth, and there was many crucifixions that took place all throughout the first century. And so Jesus grew up seeing what happened if you defied Rome. And the Romans, they hated the Jews. Like I said, it was the worst assignment you could get. Jesus knew what it was, to be, knew what it was like to be discriminated against by the Romans. Uh, he knew what it was like to be despised, to have a Roman kick him on the ribs just because he was a Jew. Jesus played in the streets. He was raised with his brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus was the sinless one. Have you ever thought about a sinless toddler? If you've been around toddlers, you've never thought about a sinless toddler. I know your grandchild's different. I know about all that stuff. (laughs) But can you imagine a sinless toddler being raised with sinful toddlers? That's that's a lot of pressure in that little house in Nazareth. When Jesus was 12 years old, he was mentally ahead of the other 12-year-olds, not because he had a super brain, but because his, his mind wasn't clouded by sin. And uh, what was he doing at age 12? Remember, he was in the temple. He was arguing with the priests. He was actually with the intellectuals of the day. Uh, he was asking them questions, which way—it was a rabbinic way of, uh, of arguing back and forth. At 12 years old, uh, his parents lost him. He spent three days looking for them. And, uh, and they, he came back, and he gave an interesting answer. He said, I must be about my father's business. And it says that he submitted himself to his parents. Okay? Have you ever been a teenager that knew more than your parents? Okay, Jesus actually did know more than his I know, <laughs> just for your teenagers, you do not know more than your parents, okay? But Jesus actually did, okay? And here's what it said. It said he submitted himself to his parents, which means he had enough information to be rebellious, and yet he submitted himself so any child who's feeling that churning of going from childhood into adulthood, Jesus is able to comfort you with that same grace and give you wisdom for how to work through that circumstance, it must have been a parent that just said it's good. Yes, yes. <laughs> Say that again, slower, yeah. No, it is good. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, at age 12, he, um, he was an apprentice to his father to become a carpenter of Nazareth. We're talking manual labor. We're talking long hours. Have you ever come home at night just dog-tired? The, the human being that's running the universe, he knows what that's like. And then we get nothing. I mean, we get a picture of him at 12 years old, And then we go to 30 years old, we hear absolutely nothing. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking when the Son of God's on earth, I want to know every single detail. Have you ever wondered why we don't hear anything from like ages 12 through 30? I would submit to you, here's the reason. It's because he was so like us, there was nothing to write about. I think we just think Jesus is this charismatic holy man, just going from one miracle to the next. But they probably wouldn't write a a book about our life. You know, we get up in the morning, you know, brush our teeth, hopefully. You know, we go to work, eat, come home, eat... Do something else, sleep, brush your teeth, like like that's not like exciting stuff, but that's normal life. And Jesus had a normal life in the kingdom of God apart from his uh, public ministry. This is where, uh, when God became flesh, He was actually getting the revelation of what it's like to live in the kingdom that He preached in the Sermon on the Mount. All this stuff He taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, here's a principle: It's illegal to teach something in the kingdom that you haven't experienced yourself. So here's Jesus. He's experiencing the kingdom. I think we think these things in the Sermon on the Mount are just like these, these nice little platitudes that are just kind of floating out there. And No, no. This, was, this was heaven meeting earth and the, and the pressures of life. So when you see things like, um, remember, Jesus lived in Nazareth where the Romans hated the Jews. And now uh, one of the favorite things the Romans would do is they would see a young muscular Jew and they would grab him and just take his coat. Remember what Jesus said? If anyone takes your coat, give him your shirt also. Where do you think he learned this? He learned it during those years between ages 12 and 30. And he wouldn't let them steal it. He would just add, them, add this shirt to them. as it. Can you just see how confused the Romans would be? They'd steal the coat and he'd be like, hey, you forgot something here. This looks about your size. Who is this guy? He's completely dependent on the Lord to defend him. When they slapped his face, he offered them the other cheek. When uh, the Romans were on the march and they were carrying their enormous backpacks, they had a law that said you could find a, uh, find a Jew and make him carry your backpack for one mile. And Jesus said, hey, if they make you do that, go ahead and carry it a second mile. I mean, you could just see the shock on the Romans' face. It was during those years that he stood at the grave of Joseph, his earthly father, the only, the only earthly father that he had known. Jesus understands grief. He knows what it's like to go back to an empty house and to take over the responsibilities as head of a house to make decisions about a budget, to deal with strange customers in the business. Have you ever sat as a young business person uh, with hassles and bills and have to choose not to cheat? God, when he became flesh, he knows what it's like to go through those things. He became so successful in Galilee that he became known as the carpenter of Nazareth and all the problems that go with that. He knows what it's like to trust God. Uh, he, remember when he said, he who cares for the birds... Of the, uh, of the year, he also cares for this little house in Nazareth as he would pray these things and as God provided for his taxes and his every need. And when he taught that in the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't making that up as he went along. This was him in experience with his father. Then there's the anguish of leaving everything behind, everything he knew, family, friends, all that, to go and uh, follow the call to his ministry. And he goes into the wilderness to face Satan. Never had Satan faced a man since Adam. He would always send his demons to do his bidding. And uh, Satan tempted Jesus with everything that he did with the first Adam, except this one was without sin. This one was absolutely perfect. It was the decisive moment when Jesus trashed Satan in the wilderness and said he uh, disarmed that strong man. And this is when you begin to see Jesus would go into places. Apparently, the demons have got some kind of network going. And so they would tell each other. So Jesus would walk in. They said, You're the Holy One of Israel. Are you here to torment us before the appointed time? Because you completely disarmed the strong man. This is your son of David here trashing Goliath. And when he does it, we shout, We won, even though we didn't lift a finger. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Remember, his brothers didn't believe in him. Uh, His mother, they didn't even understand. If you remember, when he went to Capernaum, his family tries to have him committed and says, you're crazy. Jesus understands rejection. He understands loneliness. Here's one you might not have thought of. Jesus understands failure. If you remember, he went to Jerusalem, and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I have longed to gather you as a mother hand gathers her chicks. And he says he uh, wept great sobs over Jerusalem. God knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to be temporarily homeless. It says the Son of God has no place to lay his head. In Matthew 12, we see Jesus and his disciples. It was on the Sabbath day. They were walking by. They were hungry, and they were picking grain. Jesus knows what it's like to be completely dependent upon the Father for provision. He has not just been there, but he's been victorious in it. Like I said, he hasn't just been this pincushion going through difficult times, but he's actually been victorious in it. So here's the good news is you can come to him and share intimately your pain, And he will understand what that is. But did you notice, though, um, when it comes to his life, it seems like the last week of his life got really intense. The sufferings, the beatings, the scourgings, the mockings. and um, Have you ever wondered why Jesus had to suffer? Because I think a lot of people, you know, it's the blood that covers the forgiveness of our sins. We understand that. But the Old Testament lambs, they didn't suffer. They just pulled back the head, cut the jugular vein, the blood was shed, the sins were covered. And so the... um, so a lot of people just think Jesus came to shed blood on the cross, but why the sufferings, the beatings, the tearing out of his beard, the mocking, the scourgings, the crown of horn, thorns, the crown of thorns, <clears throat> the crown of thorns and all this the hell that he went through on that final week. Have you ever wondered why he did that? Why not just get straight to the death if that was what He was after? Here's the reason, it's because he was our high priest. And there's things that you will grow up here in this world that you would experience that he couldn't just experience growing up in Nazareth. He had experienced every single horror that you could ever experience. Isaiah, in his great prophecy, he said, here's what the Messiah would do. He would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Here's what the word grief means. It means weakness, distress, anguish, heartache, sadness, mourning, misery. So here's the picture. Jesus took our inner sickness and our outer sickness. It said he cured our sorrows. It means pain of the mind and body, mental, emotional pain of one who was hurt by others. There's a lot of you here today, and you have pain that was inflicted upon you by parents, by other people, things that you didn't deserve. And I want you to look at what Jesus went through. He was betrayed. Now, in light of everything that we've just said, why did Jesus have to be betrayed? It had nothing to do with the covering of sin. It had everything to do with him being a faithful high priest that would experience everything that you could ever go through so that he could comfort you with that. So uh, that's why we have Judas the betrayer, because Jesus had to know by experience a best friend stabbing him in the back. Anyone in here who's gone through a divorce or a betrayal, the Son of Man knows what it's like to be betrayed. It's interesting. Do you remember how Judas betrayed Jesus? He didn't just come up and just point at him. He didn't just come and say, that's the guy. It says he went and he kissed him on the cheek. And if you read the margin of your Bible, he kissed him repeatedly. I mean, today it would be like coming up to someone and give them a big bear hug like you're so glad to see them. I mean, can you imagine the hurt? I'm sure Jesus would have just rather been slapped in the face. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a good friend and have that knife turned in there and twisted. Jesus understands emotional abuse. When Peter, his best friend, and John, maybe his very best best friend. Uh, Jesus is on trial in the uh, high courts of Annas, the high priest. And Annas asks Jesus a legal question. He says, what do you teach? Jesus responds with a legal response and says, ask those who heard me. In other words, ask my witnesses. There's two of them right there. Remember what happened. Now, here's Jesus at his greatest time of need. He really needs someone to get his back. And it says, John slumped down and warmed his hands. Remember, they were out in the courtyard. And Peter blasphemed and cursed and said, I don't know what you're talking about. And do you remember reading these words? It says, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Can you imagine, like, man, the betrayal, the absolute emotional abuse there. You understand what I'm saying here? He was denied justice. The uh, the way that they did the court at night, the way they had the witnesses that couldn't corroborate their stories. He was denied human rights. There was physical abuse. Obviously, the cross, the lashings, the verbal abuse. But here's another thing. Jesus understands sexual abuse. In the West here, we've never seen an actual betrayal of the the cross of Christ. When they would would crucify someone, they would strip them of their clothes. They'd be crucified naked, and part of the punishment was to be mocked. So I want you to get this. Here's Jesus, this pure man Jesus, who's never entertained an impure thought, now being forcibly stripped and put up there. There's not a judge in Columbus who would say that uh, someone who has been, who wouldn't say that someone who's been stripped naked and forcibly put on display for mockery, that's not sexual abuse. There's some of you here today in in a room this size that you've had things done against your body that you did not want to have happen, and I've got some good news for you today. There is a, human being run in the universe who has experienced everything you could experience and he hasn't just taken it upon himself he had victory in it and he wants to give you that same victory we're going to do an exercise here at the end and i've watched uh, person after person get set free from uh, those kind of wounds from sexual abuse and those things in an instant the healing of your emotions can happen as instantly as the healing of your body as quick as a tumor going away Remember at the end of his life, when he was on the cross, it said that some ladies from Jerusalem came and they had a sponge with some narcotics on the end. And uh, what they would do is as people were at their worst point of pain, it would kind of take the edge off of it. Remember, Jesus refused it. Why would he do this? Because he wanted to drink that cup of suffering to the full so that he would know by experience everything you could ever go through. And when he rose from the dead, your grief, your sorrow, your sin... He's taken it. He's totally experienced it. He's carried it away, which means if he's carried it, you don't have to carry it anymore. That's the answer to all of the abuse that was brought on by your childhood. That's why you're able to lay down the betrayals and the divorces that have ripped lives apart. And as you realize that he took this pain, he took this abuse, if he took it, it doesn't belong to you anymore. I want you guys to see the same way that he carried away your sins so you don't have to carry them— He carried away your emotional pain, all the abuse. He carried it away so you do not have to carry it anymore. And uh, if it's his, then in exchange, he gives me his strength that he used to go through it. We can boldly come before the throne of grace. You can tell him about the shame that you're wearing, the abuse that was given to you. You can say life as it's really happening, and you can say it boldly. And God says, uh, not only do I know, but I understand. I'm not sure if you've ever had somebody that's like, hey, I know, I know, and it's like knowing doesn't help, but we, we don't have a God who just knows, we have a God who feels. When you have someone who actually has gone through the same kind of loss or pain that you've gone through, comforts, there's a certain level of comfort there because they actually know what it's like. There's a human being running the universe who actually knows what it's like, and this is what enables us to forgive people who have abused us. I want you to get this picture. A forgiveness does not mean saying, "Hey, it's okay, it's all right, no big deal." Um, I mean, if somebody has criminally done something against you, you can persecute them to the full extent of the law. It doesn't mean that it's what they did is okay. It means that I'm taking my hands off of your throat, and I'm leaving you into the hands of God. Because when you have unforgiveness, you're still chained to the person who hurt you. It's forgiveness that sets you free and cuts that chain. You release them to the God. It's no longer your business. And so I remember, um, so I, you need to get this, in, in real life, my sister passed away in May 2009, in real life, because I'm about to tell you a dream. So she passed away in May 2009. Um, my cousin Jane, she passed away uh, a year or two after that. And uh, so in this dream, uh, Jane's sister Heather, my cousin, and me were sitting there, and we were grieving the loss of our siblings. And it was just, it was just really heavy, and I woke up, And there was like this demonic, uh, just grief on me. It was so toxic I could hardly breathe. But there was a part of my flesh that wanted to partner with it and just kind of wallow in it. I don't don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but it, it almost would have felt good to just grieve at a toxic level. I don't know how else to describe it. And I'm sitting there, and it's like this thing was trying to get me to partner with it. And I'd seen other people partner with that toxic grief. And I could hardly breathe. And then this thought went through my mind. I know it was the Holy Spirit. It was like Jesus carried this grief so I don't have to. And it was like the moment that 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 thing was revealed to me, that thing instantly lifted off and never came knocking on my door again. And I began to ask the Lord about it. I'm like, what was that? And it was uh, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What's good news to the poor? You don't have to be poor anymore. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Interesting, when Jesus quotes this verse in the New Testament, he leaves off the phrase, in the day of the vengeance of our God. Between the cross of Christ and the second coming, there is no vengeance of God. You will never experience the wrath of God, is what uh, Romans 5.4 says. The day of the vengeance of our God is at the end of time. When believers will be rewarded and unbelievers will be judged. Verse 3, here's the key here. To grant those who mourn in Zion. He's actually talking about our church. It's so powerful here. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. They had ashes. They got an exchange. He didn't just take away the ashes. He gave them beauty. This is how God does it. It's this divine displacement. You see it in this word instead. He gives them a garment of praise instead Of a spirit of heaviness. I think I skipped one. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The healing of our emotions happens through this divine displacement where God not only takes away the negative, but he gives you the positive. You're not just out of the red, you're way into the black. Beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness. So I remember, uh, it was a couple of years ago, we did a Cancer-Free Sunday in May, and it was just a really good idea to do Cancer-Free Sunday. I think since then, we've just thought, let's do every Sunday Cancer-Free Sunday. But this one, we've actually, we actually just set aside, and we're like, hey, if you know people with cancer, how many of you guys remember Cancer-Free Sunday? How many of you guys were there for that? And so, you know, you know you, I would stand up there making all these bold claims about Jesus, and we had people line up who had cancer, and I don't know, there's maybe like 15, I don't remember what it was. And uh, I remember I went to pray for the first person, and the person, I had, had uh, tumors that could be seen almost through their shirt and definitely felt. Pray and nothing happened. Praying, nothing happened. And I had a thought. Maybe I should ask the Holy Spirit what to do and not just move in my little formula. <clears throat> Always a good idea. And so, so I'm standing there, feel, kind of feeling the pressure. Here it is, cancer-free Sunday. Nothing's happening. Performance anxiety starting to happen. Eyes on myself, which is the opposite of faith. Faith looks at Jesus. So I'm like, Holy Spirit, what is going on here? And he takes me back into a memory. A few months, a few months before that, uh, we had Saturday night service back then. And in um, and, uh, and the Saturday night service, this uh, Catholic lady came in. She'd never been to a Protestant church, and she's in a wheelchair. So she comes rolling in there. And so after service, I was talking to her. And as I'm talking to her, I just kind of get this knowing. And so I just said it to her. I said, listen, I feel like you're carrying something the Lord doesn't want you to carry. She was super precious. And in it, she goes, oh, Really? And I'm like, yeah. And he so like, says, what do I do? And I said, so ask the Holy Spirit what you're carrying that he doesn't want you to carry. He said, Holy Spirit, what am I carrying that you don't want me to carry? Oh, unforgiveness towards my father. She's gasping just like that. She was super cute. And, um, and she's like, uh, what do I do with it? And I said, I want you to look at this. I said, um, you can't receive something while you're still holding on to something. I said, so he wants you to let go of that unforgiveness, but he wants to give you something instead. And I said, so ask him what he wants to give you. Holy Spirit, what do you want to give me? Oh, <gasps> I see a field. What does it mean? I'm like, I have no idea. And I said, uh, ask the Holy Spirit. I so yes, the Holy Spirit. Oh, I see him taking me by the hand and walking me into freedom. I said, I said that's it. I said, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to let go of that unforgiveness, and I want you to receive that. And so I, just, I said, whatever that looks like between you and God. So as I just watched her, I didn't see anything physically with my eyes, but I could just see this exchange taking place. And she was just, man, something lifted off of her. She's like, thank you. So I didn't even think to pray for her. And um, she uh, rolls up to the front. And within two minutes, she's out of the wheelchair. The doctor said she would never walk again. I think it was like three years in the wheelchair. And she comes, she comes walking by me. And she's pushing her wheelchair. And she says, my husband's never going to believe this. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And so, so I, you know, I'm praying nothing happened, praying nothing happened. All this flashes through my mind. So I'm like, all right, let's do this exchange. And so we just kind of stood up. And just in front of the whole congregation, it's like, listen, uh, I believe many of you are carrying things God doesn't want you to carry. Had him do the exchange, went and prayed, the tumor went completely gone. And we just began to get breakthrough after breakthrough after that. So here's how I would like to end the service. I believe in a room this size that uh, there's many of you who are carrying things that God doesn't want you to carry. And so if you will just close your eyes for a moment, we're just gonna do a little, uh, just do a little exchange here with the Holy Spirit. And uh, I just wanna encourage you that whatever you're holding on to, He can remove it as instantaneously as those tumors were removed. And so just let him highlight that. So just ask this question. We're going to ask a question that you're either going to get a knowing or a picture. This is how the Holy Spirit speaks. Remember, it said Jesus knew in his spirit. So you're just going to kind of get a knowing. You're going to get a picture. So here's the question. Holy Spirit, what am I carrying that you don't want me to carry? ask this question, Holy Spirit, what do you want to give me instead? Look at me for one moment here. You're not able to receive that thing until you let go of the one thing. So just between you and the Lord... I want you to let go of that thing. Give it to him. It's not yours. Remember, he carried it away, so you don't have to carry it anymore. And So, Lord, I just thank you that you are my high priest. You carried it away, but then receive that thing instead. Between you and the Lord, just take it by faith. So just take a few moments for that. Jesus, I thank you that you are a great and faithful high priest, <laughs> that you really have experienced everything that we could. You tasted that cup of suffering to the full so that you could comfort us in our time of need. And Lord, I just thank you for the exchanges that are taking place and will continue to take place as you free up your people to receive everything that you paid for. How many of you felt like something happened, like you exchanged something there? Awesome. Before we leave, I'd just like to close out with this. If there's anyone in here and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, uh, you've never trusted him, I'm not talking about if you were sprinkled as a baby. I'm talking about have you made a decision that says, I'm going to follow Jesus. And uh, when you're trusting Jesus, you're not just believing facts about something he did 2,000 years ago. You're saying, Jesus, I'm trusting with my life, with my marriage, with my school, with my business. Like, I'm going to learn from you how to be like you. And so if you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus, I just want to give you an opportunity to follow him. So I'm just going to ask you to do something bold. And uh, if we've got our ministry teams come forward and uh, just line across the front, and I'm just going to ask you to do something bold, not trying to embarrass you, but I just want to give you the power of the scripture. Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. Here's the good news of the gospel. News means it's something that's already happened. It's not something that you must now do. This isn't like, okay, I'm going to try harder. Here's the good news is Jesus has already done everything that you need to become a follower of his. And then he will continue to give power to live a life after him, not in your own strength, but in his. So if you're here today and you say, listen, I want to follow Jesus. I don't know. What, I've never done it. Or maybe it's been a long time and you want to come home. I'm going to ask you to do something bold. Jesus said, if you'll confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. And so if you're here and uh, you want to become a follower of Jesus, you have not done that before, or maybe you just wandered away, I'm just going to ask you to be bold and just raise your hand, and I'm going to ask you to actually come down front, and so you can pray with our people. Is there anybody here, you do not know Jesus, but you want to become a follower today? Be careful of scratching your eyebrows. You might get counted there. So, Anybody, you do not know Jesus, but you're like, hey, today's my day. Your, your heart's probably pounding. Your uh, palms are probably sweaty. It's okay. Uh, this is family. We've all Had a moment where we crossed that line. Is there anybody in here? All right, let's stand. Lord, I bless your people to be the most dangerous people in Columbus, Ohio. I thank you that they're going to heal the sick, raise the dead, give away millions of dollars, be a leader of men, and be best friends with Jesus. I bless their families. I bless their businesses. And, Lord, may we experience just the grace of your goodness. May we recognize that we serve a father who's not mad, who's not angry. who has got nothing but good gifts for his children. So I bless this church to run into their destiny, to be kings and priests in their marketplace, in their grocery stores, and their homes, and their schools. And now, Lord, let the name of Jesus be held in high esteem in this city because of the people in this room.